Hello, you're listening to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and I'm joined by my colleagues at Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. We're taking time to enjoy the pleasures that autumn brings, from the beautiful shadows of twilight to the jobs that keep you connected to the great outdoors during these shorter, colder days. Later, we'll hear Anton chat to Becca Stevenson, the head grower of an organic community-supported agriculture scheme based here at Wrighton Gardens. Becca talks Anton through the challenge of providing over 100 weekly organic veg boxes all year round. And we'll be answering your questions on protecting soil over winter, sprang-infected potatoes, yes, that's sprang, I hadn't heard of it either, and organic compost. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. This month, they've a special offer for listeners of 12 Raspberry Autumn Bliss plants for just £12 at organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD8, saving a fantastic £23. That's organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD8 to claim your special offer. And now I'm off to join Chris in the potting shed. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm really well, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, very, very well indeed. Thank you. Yes, uh, enjoying a beautiful autumn. I don't know about you. It's, I love the last throws of it as the crowns start to thin and the colours really deep. But I hear you've been out and about. Tell me what you've been up to. I have. I've been, I went up to Cumbria uh, last month and um, I went to see a garden organic compost demonstration area, which has been put in at a brilliant wildlife trust site called Gosling Site. And they've got this most beautiful organic garden there. And um, they have put in a series of different types of composting sort of methods uh, to show you how to do it. So you've got a compost based system, quite straightforward, probably exactly what you'd expect, but great to see something in action. You can see things turned from one bay to the next. They've got an absolutely brilliant wormery area, which they've brought in sort of under under a little bit of cover, which actually is, I've just done myself for my wormery here. I've just brought it under cover. And um, they've got a brilliant leaf mould area. And just they just show you all the ways that you can use the leaves, using the grass cuttings, all your all your clippings from your garden. It's It's brilliant to think that everything you grow can be used again, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And it's interesting you pick up on leaf mould a little bit there because uh, there's a question I've got for you, actually. But the first of all, the leaf mould thing is amazing because it's a massive free bonanza, isn't it? You've got this beautiful soil conditioner that falls out of the sky. It's a nutrient. You can use it for seed sowing. It's just a big, massive early Christmas present from nature, isn't it? But I'm interested in wormeries because I've had my, my successes and my failures with wormeries. So you're saying you've just moved yours indoors. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, mine is a lovely big round one. You know, it's on the sort of several layers and you, you fill up one layer with food, the worm will do their thing. And then once that's sort of turned into casting, you you then get the next layer up going and, and you, you have a really sort of straightforward process there. But the problem is that it has perforations across the top of it, obviously to aerate it. But what that means is when it rains, that the rain washes right through. And I mean, I quite regularly empty it anyway to, to get the, the worm juice out for plant food. But what it's doing is effectively it's going to drown the worms if it just gets too wet. And I learned this by going and looking at this compost demonstration site that actually really all year round it could do with just being not indoors, but you can have it under a bit of shelter then you stop the rain washing through it too much. I have to say, because like all these things, you can't leave it to get too dry either, and you can't let it get too hot either. So you do have to keep an eye on it. It is a living thing that you're that you're working with. And there are times of year when you kind of have to water your wormery to, to give them a bit of help. But generally, yeah, leaving it out to get too wet it is not a good idea. Yeah, because it's not what it's been like in the rest of the country. We've had almost a biblical rainfall here in terms of showers. That's no good. So just make sure it's under a roof is what you're saying, so you're not getting all that excess water. And like everything in the garden, just give it a check once a day or once every couple of days. Does that work? Yeah, I mean, that's what it's like with everything, isn't it? The observations, the beauty of it, yeah. isn't it? Just go and check on it. Don't ignore it. You know, go and, <laughs> yeah. go and enjoy it. Go and marvel at it. Go engage, and, you know, engage, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, engage. In it. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and the thing about all these compost methods, really, is that they, 
you know, you think it's all going to be manky and smelly and, ugh, you know, and it yeah. just isn't. When I got the wormery, the guy I bought the worms from as well said to me, I wouldn't put any meat in it, but you'll get maggots. And then, you, and then of course, it just ruins the whole thing. But actually, if you've got just your veg peelings, they don't like onions. So very, <laughs> very discerning, my worms. They don't like onions. They don't like citrus. Yeah. But apart from that, any other vegetable peeling, you don't want it to become a, 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 a nasty experience for you. So, so keep the meat out of it. Yeah. And so that that balance of moisture is quite important, isn't it? So you shred paper if you thought it was too wet, could you balance it out with that as well? Yeah, the the advice I was given actually was to wrap it in newspaper. So I I get you know I I just put all the veg peelings and I sort of wrap it up in like a parcel and I just put the parcel in and that, and that seems to do the trick. But yeah, it's like all these things. Just keep an eye on it. It's the old brown and green, isn't it? If, yeah. You know, mm. getting too wet, put some brown in. If it's getting too dry, put some green in. You know, it kind of works. Keep out that way. balance going. Yeah. Yes. So I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. All also to know, um, I know you put a pond in this year, didn't you? And we're coming yeah. to a different season now, so I'm wondering how you're doing with the pond. Oh, thanks for asking, Chris. <laughs> it's been a, it has been a joy, as we've, we've talked a lot about it, and I, I absolutely love it. Well, first of all, the rain has been incredible for it. The the level has gone up, I don't know, something like three or four inches, I would say, uh, which makes quite a big difference. It's actually quite a big pond as ponds go. So, you know, you feel like the surface area just feels that much bigger. And the whole thing just looks fresher. It just looks it just looks cleaner and, and, and happier. Yeah, that rainwater is really crucial to a pond because obviously it's natural water, whereas if you're filling it out of a hose, which is fine, because if it's low, you need to fill it. But our tap water tends to contain lots of chloride, nitrates, that kind of thing, which then encourages all the sort of aggressive plants we don't want in there, doesn't it? So the more rainwater you can collect while it's raining, because we know it stops sometimes, and to collect that for your pond, the better, isn't it? Then you've got that beautiful fresh water and your plants and your wildlife will respond to it. And the, the thing I think that's supposed to be very good, and again, you you know, you're the expert, I'm not the scientist, but the fact that the raindrop breaks the surface tension of the water mm. means that you're actually oxygenating. The rain itself is oxygenating whilst also filling it up. It so stops that stagnation and then, then what happens is you get sort of weeds that will exploit that stagnation on the top. I mean, it's interesting because it's been so dry, certainly in the south where I am, how important just rain is. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really is vital, but certainly a, a new pond like yours will be greatly benefiting from it. I decided that the place to put to site the pond was in amongst some trees. And I, I don't regret that decision, but I know I'm going to have to manage that a bit. Can you tell me what's going to happen if there's with leaves falling in? I think a little bit of build up in the bottom of the pond is fine because obviously things like dragonfly larvae, they like that bit of cover in the bottom. But you don't you want need excess. A bit of sediment. Yeah, you do. Yeah, because a lot of stuff lives in it. But excess would affect the pH of the pond. If there's too much of it, the pH will get affected and that might compromise wildlife. So if you think it's building up, just a spring rock or a lawn rake turned upside down, just fish those leaves out. Maybe that's, again, a, an observation job. You go and look at it if it looks like it's getting excessive. But don't throw the leaves straight in the compost bin. Leave them on the side of the pond, maybe two and three hours. So any bugs, any water boaters, anything like that can make its way back into the pond. That's quite a nice rule to follow but the leaves aren't, I mean, they're beginning to fall, but there's going to be an absolute deluge. Yeah, it will it take one frost and it'll go bang? It will, yeah. <laughs> it will. I'm noticing in November, normally oaks are the last to go, but they were quite early this year. You get that really rusty, sort of yellowy look on them. And uh, I think once they get a cold night, they'll be like, that's it. <laughs> so just again, we're, you know, we're organic gardeners. It's all about keeping an eye on everything. And that's the joy of doing the job. Talk about keeping an eye. I've been looking out on my fig tree at the moment. It's just started to go yellow at the top. I didn't know this. You, I mean, I feel stupid. Maybe you knew this already. Maybe everybody else knows this in the whole world apart from me. I didn't realise you could make things with fig leaves. You can actually eat fig leaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm dying to get myself organised to try. So I've got to wait for the weekend and see if there's see a few it ones I left. I know that Cypritic lads on my allotment do it with grape leaves because they wrap sort of a meat and rice dish in it, which is quite nice. Actually, talking of figs, I, where I am, there's a lot of figs on the site that were taken by cuttings from Cyprus 40, 50 years ago. That just do tremendously well here. And obviously that's why they brought them. So hardwood cuttings is a really nice time to do this. A, a 10 inch, or, I mean, 20 centimetre, we're going metric, cutting, hardwood cutting, which means the growth from over a year, over a whole season. You take that out and you make a curved cutting at the top of the piece of wood and a flat one at the bottom, do it above and under a node, which is the swelling on the stem put them in the ground in a sandy bit of ground for the winter and make yourself some new fig plants. 
then, as we always say, give them away. Not just figs, presumably. You can do it with uh, some roses to it, but the big famous ones are willows, dogwoods. So if you want a winter hedge, say if you want a really colourful winter hedge, dogwoods are amazing. They're natives and a lot of hybrids as well. But a little, a little dogwood cutting, you can bundle them up into bundles of 100 plants, literally 20 centimetres long. You put them north-facing in a trench. You bury them three-quarters of the way down. Make sure the trench drains. It doesn't get waterlogged. Leave them there for the winter. They all root, and then you can literally put a boundary in with reds and yellows, winter yellows, so you get this beautiful winter hedge. It's quite a good idea. Hang on a minute. North-facing? What do you mean? North-facing, yeah. North-facing, not south-facing, is the rule with hardwood cuttings. Basically, they need the lower temperatures to, to make sure the, the roots grow, to stimulate the roots. And then you could dig them up. You've got, literally, if you've done 400 cuttings, you'll have 400 plants. That's incredible. Never heard that method where you put 100 together. Well, you bundle and you... We, we used to, well, the old boys used to put it in twine. So you yeah. bundle it in twine. And the reason you slope the top of the cutting is in case you put it down and then you can't remember which way up it goes. But I'd always, always get a knife and scrape away the outer skin of the cutting so you expose the vascular bundle because that's got cambium. Cambium is what produces the roots. I'd probably use, there's lots of this on the market, an organic hormone powder. Dip it in that. Bundle it up in big bundles. I think the big, big rule is don't just put it in soil. Make sure you mix it with horticultural sand or horticultural gravel so you get free drainage. Spike the bottom of the trench as well. But I've never heard of that method. Well, the thing again, isn't it, is this time of year is quite interesting, isn't it? Because people go, oh, that's the season. Like, I've just ripped on the balcony out of its summer bedding and the tomatoes. It's all finishing. I put my bulbs in. My allotment, all the sort of tenders are coming out. I'm changing stuff. I'm building new paths. Everyone thinks, oh, that's the season done. Uh, and they always forget about hardwood cuttings. There's all these little jobs you can do now that you can work through the winter. That It maintains your excitement, your anticipation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so we talked a bit about falling leaves and making leaf mould, gather them together, put them in a bag, make sure they're a little bit damp, uh, leave them to it. But what I wanted to ask more about was how a pile of leaves or how important it is to create some habitats around our garden for, for our, our insects. Um, have you got any sort of top tips in that area? Yes, well, certainly habitat piles, which is probably one of the easiest things you can do. So I'd use bits of old twigs bark, leaves, anything like that, and put them in piles in your borders, and that just protects your wood lice, your spiders, all that ecosystem, they've got somewhere to hide. But we have to be careful as organic gardeners not to contradict ourselves, because it's also the time of year uh, mould or powdery, mildew-laden leaves. You want to remove them, because otherwise they'll overwinter. Because if you've got, say, a comfrey, which has had mildew all over it, I don't know, we've probably all got one of those, haven't we? I certainly have. <laughs> yeah. Or courgette leaves. What will happen is those leaves get a thing called sclerota, which is like a hard fungal body of mycelium, which is the actual fungus itself. And they'll sit in the ground over the winter. And as soon as the spring rains come, they literally explode and they'll re-infest anything around it. So just do your DDD, your damage, disease or dying material. Just remove it because then you won't have, you'll have less chance of problems later on. It's a hygiene thing. But I, I think sort of untidy gardens need to be organised as well. I like the idea of creating these these piles within the borders, actually, because you, if you've got a border, then you already know, you know, that that's organised in itself. It's a border. Then you know that, you you know, it's not sitting on the grass and the grass is going to go yellow or it's not sitting on a path and things are going to get in the way. I also think, though, this time of year isn't a bad one for planting a few things. Is that right? Oh, I think I think if you ask any um, gardener, most of my planting in my career has always been done October, November, even early December. The soil is still warm. And what happens is the plant is not going to stop synthesizing. It's not trying to draw energy out of the, of the air still again. So what will happen is it will just sit there. The soil is still warm. It will produce more roots. So it's the perfect time to put a shrub or a tree in. And also means next spring, as the soil starts to warm again, it's got a real head start. So I certainly think this is the best time to do it. If you're planning a re-landscape or plant a new board or anything like that, this is the time. Now, I heard a rumour that you have been doing a little bit of re-landscaping on your allotment, Chris. Oh, I am. Well, I am. Um, I've never joined a gym. And I do could, could, could do with losing a little bit of weight, I suppose. Maybe no. it's my gin. 
It's <laughs> the lot is my gym. <laughs> it's the curse of middle age, Fiona. You know, you know. That's I what do. Kind of do. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I'm so I'm going to get on that lot, man. And I look at it, and, I go, and I've still got a lot of parsnips in. I've got brassicas in. I've got kale. I've got all these bits of. I've got leeks in. So I kind of harm. I graze it this time of year. But a lot of the wood on the allotment is uh, I divide it into beds. It's quite rotten and old. I don't pay for a thing. I literally hunt it down. I, I skip. And so this is the time of year when I lift all of that out check what's rotten, what's still good, and repeg it all. And it's just a brilliant sort of winter's day job, you know. It keeps you warm, you're out in the air, and, uh, and, and then also you end up with a really nice product. You get something to look at that you're proud of at the end of the day. And it is actually appealing to that part of us all where we kind of like to clean and tidy a bit. We, we know as organic gardeners how important it is to mm. allow nature to take its course in, in some ways. But at the same time, when we talked a little bit about hygiene, it's so important to, to have a, a structure there, isn't there? So that you can have something to work against, you know, those those areas that, that are going to cause damage to next year's growing. <laughs> You're editing, aren't you, basically? You're editing a plot. That's what you're doing. And I think with organic gardening, your attitude to it is much freer. You're looser about it. When I started gardening, if we saw a dandelion, it was out. If we saw a bit of grass that overhung the edge of a border, it was clipped with a pair of shears. and It was quite full on, whereas I think organic gardens, we're much more loose. But there's still, you know, engagement in it. You want a balance, and there's a job for us to do as as gardeners to make sure we maintain that balance. So you're in there and you're editing the things that are going to cause you problems and you're letting the stuff that's going to flourish grow. And I think that's, and that's again, the essence of organic gardening is you're on it, you're right there, you're close up. And that, that I think, in my opinion, is a wonderful thing. I tell you, a spot of editing I've got to do right now is I've got some really bad brambles in my garden. I really have got a lot of brambles. And, you know, and I go into this thing all optimistic. Oh, it'll mean loads of blackberries. But actually, at the end of the day, it does mean some blackberries. It also means an awful lot of brambles. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, it's, it's now the time to really try and get on top of that. Certainly. It's a pioneer species of bramble. So it will, if the ground is left it will move in. And that's why when you sometimes see a back garden that no one's touched for 10 years, it's bramble. I mean, I wouldn't want it in a five by five time town garden, that's for sure. But it is also very dominant, but it does like most pernicious plants, most plants that are pioneerial, doesn't like to be disturbed. It doesn't like, you know, us coming along and doing stuff with it. So my advice with it was to dig it out Dig it out. You'll never get rid of all of it. So some of it's going to come back. That's No, that's the way the plant is. But try and shade it out. So replace it, basically. So I would dig it out. I would then give the soil a good compost, dig in some compost, and then I'd plant in some nice, fast-growing, beautiful, hardy shrubs like Iliagnus or Spirea or those sort of part shrubs you always see doing quite well. And they'll get up quite quick and shade out your bramble. Bramble's a pioneer species, so it won't like that interference. It'll go off and do it somewhere else. And it looks no, it looks great along a riverbank, doesn't it? Or along a railway track. So there's plenty of space for it. And there's plenty of blackberries to be picked. But maybe not in your own back garden. I don't mind a bit of it, I have to say. And I, I think the butterflies love it too, don't they? So I, I don't mind a bit of it. But it, 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 yeah, this year it's just got, it's got away Keep from it. Keep a container. I think it's an amazing plant, the way, because it's spiky. What it does is it has these lovely thorns on it. It clings onto the back of the fur of badgers or whatever, of foxes. And then that's what carries it off. So you'll, they'll break a bit off with a bit of flower on it or seed on it. So it's just it's a clever plant that going, there's fresh ground, I'm having it. So that's good. But obviously we want our own spaces to look how we want them. I'm feeling really encouraged, actually. And I, I will uh, I will plant some uh, shrubs on top of it. I've got a few things that I've divided. So, yeah, let's get on top of it. So I'm very inspired now. <laughs> um, so it is, uh, I think, uh, quite a special time of year, this, this time of year. I think, it, you know, just all the change that we've just seen and, you know, the way the light changes, the clocks have changed just our own sort of sense of how we relate to the the world around us and the land around us has has sort of changed and and i think there's some kind of wonder really for me particularly in the in the evening light how how different it all looked this time of year do, do you feel the same Chris? I, I absolutely adore winter i really do and i think we're blessed we're blessed that we live in a country that has four seasons. I really do. And I think this is, to me, the time to look at trees mostly because as the leaves drop, you just get these amazing forms. A birch tree on a winter's day against a blue or even a grey sky just looks fantastic. A hornbeam. So you'll see detail that you never usually see. There's two things go on for me. One is I just, I'm amazed at how intelligent plants are just to go to sleep for the winter. <laughs> I would if I could. And I love the idea they just shut down and go, 
I'll wait till times are better. And they do it brilliantly and have done for millions and millions of years. I love that about it. But I also like the fact it's a time of reflection. You look at what's gone on before and you start to get excited at what's ahead. I think it's a very special time of year. I think my advice to anyone at this time of year is step back, take a breath and have a look at how beautiful it is. I think that's right, isn't it? The, the, the greatest thing about gardening is observation. It's just watching things grow. It's watching things change. And, and it's such a gift, isn't it? It just gives it back. If you just stop and watch, it's all there to see. And, and you know, we talk uh, a lot about the gardening season, don't we? But actually, there's no such thing. As no, the there isn't. No, there isn't. <laughs> it just isn't. It just isn't. I mean, it's also just a time for discovery, I think, in a little way. There's a, um, I'm going to drop a plant in it. There's a, a cherry called Prunus cerilla, which has these amazing sort of deep red exfoliating bark, like peeling bark. You'll see this in any botanic garden probably in any good sort of park, maybe sometimes. But it, on the, when the slow winter sun's out, it just looks like it's on fire. It's just the most breathtaking sight. And I just think little things like that, you wouldn't notice the rest of the time of year. So have a look out. I go and visit some parks, National Trust Gardens, uh, Botanic Gardens, get out and about and just spot those things you wouldn't normally see. It really is just a stunning, stunning time of year. Now, we've all heard of veg box schemes and farmers markets, but what about CSAs? CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and this is when a farmer or a smallholder produces vegetables, fruit, and sometimes also eggs and meat for distribution amongst their CSA members. CSAs operate by dividing their business up into shares. If you buy a share, then you'll be provided with year-round food, it's a brilliant way of getting local produce onto local plates. And you may be surprised at how affordable it is. If you want to find one near you, then look up Community Supported Agriculture and you'll find a map of registered CSAs. Here at Wrighton, we're lucky enough to have one on the same site as Garden Organic. It's called Five Acre Community Farm and it's run by Becca Stevenson. Anton caught up with Becca in Five Acres Cozy Shed. So hello Becca, you're the principal grower here. Yeah. And perhaps you could say a little bit about actually what community supported agriculture is. How does it differ from a box scheme or a farm shop? So there's lots of different ways that CSAs work, but the basic principle that people pay upfront and monthly so that there's a guaranteed income for the farm. Um, but you're kind of a bit more committed than a box scheme. We, we start people off with a four-week trial, and if after four weeks they're happy of getting organic local seasonal veg, then we go, OK, cool. But yes, yeah, CSAs can be as different as producing honey or producing meat or vegetables, fruit, all sorts of different things. But the main aspect of it is that they sort of buy a share in what you produce. Yeah. It, it sort of cuts out the middleman. It's great because that really does provide a guaranteed income for the farmer. Yeah, and it kind of cuts down on food waste as well because you're only harvesting for the people you know that are coming. And for example, at Five Acre, we've got an extras table. So if we've got anything left over that wasn't picked up. And what happens if they don't like a particular vegetable? How does that work? Well, basically, they, if they've got something in their share they won't eat, they don't like, they can put it in the extras table and just help themselves to whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy it because I just don't know what I'm going to get each week. Well, I've got a fair idea from the growing season, but there's always one or two surprises in there. I think, oh, great, celeriac, that's something that I hadn't necessarily planned on cooking. And I th Yeah, I really like that aspect of it. Um, we're actually sitting in the packing room now, and it's full of all sorts of vegetables. What are people getting in their share this week? So from this sort of time of the year onwards till about sort of March, we'd aim to have potatoes and onions. Um, and then we've also got beetroot. And then what else have we got? Going around the corner, we've got some tomatoes and the last of the peppers. So we've just harvested all the peppers. And then we've got some cucumbers still. Then we've got some cabbages, Chinese cabbages, celery, petrol spinach, chilli and garlic. Yeah, it really sounds a pretty generous share. And we had a really good fruit year this year, so we'll probably have apples for the next little while. And how does that share vary through the year? So, you know, that's a, a kind of, you know, with the celery and stuff, it feels like a very autumnal sort of share with the fruit. So in the sort of, at the start of summer, there might be some new potatoes and, and some onions 
but there'll be more bags of salad. The tomatoes probably won't have started yet, but there'll be courgettes, cucumbers start coming in, and yeah, aubergines. Very then, you know, in the middle of winter, people think, oh, you can't grow anything, you know, there's not much there in February, January sort of time, but there's still plenty that sort of sits in the field. So there's still potatoes and onions, carrots, parsnips, kale, different cabbages, leeks, um, various things coming out of the tunnels, salads and spinach and things like that, herbs. It varies a lot, but we try and keep it interesting as we know people don't get to choose. And what's the most difficult time of year to produce and how do you get around that? So the hardest time of year to produce is the hungry gap. That sort of goes from about April to June. And that's when the crops that we've planted are too small to eat. And the crops that have been stored over the winter have either decided to bolt because it's warmed up and gone to seed or we've eaten them all. So then it comes down to like the squash that stores really well and the beetroot that we store in sand that lasts through till June and the stuff in the tunnels, so spinach and salad, oriental greens. And we do dried beans, which I really enjoy doing. I like being able to grow our own protein sources. So they're already drying in the tunnels now, ready for winnowing and threshing later in the year. And we also do like pots of herbs so that people can take herbs and other plants, flowers home and plant them in the garden, which is a bit of a hit. And we've just planted some rhubarb and some asparagus, so soon that'll really help with the hungry gap. You just have to do lots of different things to deal with that time of year. So normally people collect veg every week, but when COVID hit, we sort of switched up because that was kind of, that all sort of lockdowns all happened at the start of the hungry gap. So we changed to doing fortnightly collections. And because there was less veg going into the shear on a weekly basis, if you kind of bunch that up into a fortnightly collection, you'd actually get a decent amount of veg. I must admit, over the years, I seem to have noticed the sort of amount you're getting in the hungry gap seems to be more. I, th- I think you've probably got more on top of yeah. sort of extending. Chinese cabbage season. and pak choy yeah. is a big breakthrough, amazing crop that, you know, sown mid-February and it's ready in May. It's great. Yeah, I think that that's really good because just to be clear, you don't import anything from elsewhere at all as far as no. I I'm So anything, that, yeah. everything people get from the farm in this year is grown on the farm that's that's really incredible i mean it really is about as local as you can get and it and it's organic so five acre as you've said it's a csa and often that means uh, bringing other benefits to the community what sort of things do you do you do as members of the csa folks can come and help out and volunteer and in that respect they learn about growing vegetables and fruit but also we try and have socials on the field a few times a year so it might be like a potato harvesting day or so on the 22nd of October we've got a beetroot harvesting and apple pressing day people can come up and help out with that yeah like ways to get people who are members of the farm up to the farm and feel like they're vested in it and feeling that part of a community so yeah a few different things so the idea is almost if more to it than just coming and collecting your your food yeah that's nice i think that's good obviously you're an organic farm so you're you're actually sort of certified as organic what what does that actually entail for you so it means i've got to keep records of basically what we planted where and when and then like the harvest amounts of everything and then once a year we'll get the soil association around and they'll come and audit some props and look at all our paperwork and check that basically we're not buying anything in that's not organic and then selling it off as organic because that would be bad and checking that we're not putting things on the soil that we shouldn't be but it's like keeping those records is useful anyway like I probably do it regardless because it's good to be able to look back and go oh well I sowed that then and that's how it turned out and it was different from the year before when I sowed it at a different time and you know you can get a bit of a sense of history of what worked when do you have anything that's a sort of favorite thing to grow um i think probably tomatoes because i kind of like going in there and training them and it's kind of like a bit of a time for me to just me and the plants it's kind of a bit meditative yeah as as to eat like probably courgettes is my favorite yeah i think i mean i'd go with the tomatoes definitely i mean just the smell as well are there any things that you think are most of a challenge to grow so we've got really sandy soil and so there are some things like celery, celeriac and some brassicas that you know really struggle. And then another problem is pigeons. And so I've never managed... Well, I tried the first year to grow peas outside and they were just decimated by pigeons. 
So I've just kind of put a stop to that. I mean, I, I suppose if you think about it, probably a commercial grower for a sort of big packer wouldn't consider growing brassicas on a soil like this. They would be mostly grown on the silty soils in, in Lincolnshire. But I, I've certainly seen that you've probably done a lot to build up the soil fertility here because of sort of quality of the produce like the brassicas certainly has got better over, over the years. You said a bit earlier that you're on quite a sandy soil. What sort of things do you do to look after the soil? As much as we can, we cover it with green manure. Could you just say perhaps what sort of green manures you would Yeah, grow? well this year I've changed up the rotation a bit and I tried to sow a summer green manure that would have been sort of short-lived clovers. But then we had this crazy heat wave and they didn't really do anything. They just sort of sat there because I didn't have the spare irrigation to water them. But that's the plan in the coming years is that the whole section of the plots is covered with a summer green manure. And then in the winter, a rye vetch and phacelia mix. And You're never leaving the soil bare, basically. Yeah. yeah, and another thing we've done is we use biodegradable cornstarch mulch um, in the beds of the brassicas and the squash and the beans to try and cut down weed problems. And then in the paths between the cornstarch mulch, we sow white clover. Theoretically, that'll outcompete the weeds as well if we keep mowing it. So it's like a living mulch. Yeah. Great. And then we also buy in green waste compost. Yeah, I've seen you use quite, quite a lot of green waste compost. How do you get on with that? Yeah, it seems so far so good, touch wood. So actually, you're, you're not using any animal manures at all. Is that, is that a conscious decision or just a choice through availability? Yeah, it's mostly through avail- availability, but also um, because we're certified organic and I'd imagine that most organic farmers with livestock would be using that muck on on their own farms because to keep it in a closed loop makes most sense so if we were buying in non-organic compost we'd have to stack it somewhere for at least six months and ideally we'd want to compost it down a bit and we don't really have the space to do that so what about other challenges weeds and mm-hmm. how, how do you get on top of, <laughs> keep on top of that oh so we've got this weed called gallant soldier came from south america somewhere via q gardens and when you've got it and it, apparently it really loves sandy soil as well it can produce 2,000 seeds off every plant and those seeds can live in the soil for 20 years and it only takes four weeks from seeds germinating to plant producing more seeds but yeah it's it's just bane of my life it's a super weed by super the, weed yeah, yeah it comes up like little green carpets everywhere and do you think is it invasive enough to really have an effect on the crop like it's with the cornstarch like and the clover and things that can work really well just got to be really on it so with the carrots and the parsnip you can flame weed it before the germinate get rid of that first flush and then keep on it with the hoeing and hand weeding while they're small they'll kind of grow past it so yeah if you can get on top of the plant when it's small it can hold its weight apart from something like celery and celeriac that really kind of struggles and we grow all the onions through mypex anyway so we've done doing everything we can but at the moment in the beetroot there's scant soldier all over the place and that can then mean that mice have got like little places to hang out and then they might chew on some of the beetroots there's no line of sight for birds of prey or whatever to come and get i must admit i hadn't thought of that <laughs> oh one year we had it with some purple sprouting and the purple sprouting was the same height as the gallant soldier and we went to go and weed it and there was just they just they just chewed through all stems of the purple sprouting oh, sound indictive almost <laughs> i must admit over my time here certainly with things like onions i mean the the mulches have made a massive difference. I, I remember trying to harvest an onion crop when there were so many weeds. I had trouble actually finding the onions. No, I think that might there. be my first year when I had this bright idea that maybe we should do onions from seed because it would save us money. Soon learnt. I've <laughs> yeah, soon learnt. Yeah, but now, I mean, size of small footballs almost. <laughs> Some of them, yeah. You just have to sort of cut an onion in, into pieces for your dinner. Sort of a whole one is too much. Any other sort of problems you have with pests and diseases? Um, I suppose your usual sort of polytunnel pests, so red spider mite and white fly and things like that, but just get some biologicals in to deal with that. There is some sort of um, sclerotonia fungusy things in the tunnels, but um, generally it doesn't affect too much of the crop. Yeah, you know, with things like aphids, just in the spring, got to hold your nerve and hope that the ladybirds will get going. There was one year where we were just like, oh God, the aphids were all over the squash and courgettes and it was we were just thinking, oh, we're going to lose this. And then all of a sudden the ladybirds came to the rescue. So sometimes it's just about putting it out there and hoping that the predators will get on top of it. So you wouldn't use any soap sprays on those? No, because no. that would hurt the ladybirds as well, wouldn't it? So. 
Yeah, I, I've experienced the same at home. Growing peppers in the glass house and thought, God, this is absolutely doomed. And 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 then just all the predators came in. Parasitic wasp came in, the hoverfly larvae came in, and also ladybirds. So I had a trio of friendly creatures helping me out. So yeah, if you can can hold your nerve and it works, and that's definitely the, the way. Well, on to the go. kind of scale we're at, you know, we can't exactly go around every single plant. Just doesn't make sense no. for you. Yeah. What what other activities take place on on the site here? Because you're on the, we're on the site of Garden Organic and the Coventry University do you get involved with them at all? Yeah, so um, this year's the first year we're going to grow we're growing some runner beans for the Heritage Seed Library. We've also been working quite closely with Coventry University, so they've got researchers on site um, and they've been doing trials, looking at mulches and various other things and basically said, well yeah, you can use a bit of the space on the field but we get to use the vegetables. A few years ago they did a trial with loads of tomatoes so what were they going to do with what ended up being 500 kilos of tomatoes they gave it all to us so that's quite a nice beneficial relationship and then we've kind of got this sharing of space with the Coventry University Estates team with the apple orchards we like help with the pruning and then we harvest all those apples so yeah we're quite embedded in the site with all the different stakeholders sounds good um during covid i mean i i remember the first time i'd ever really seen it just going to a supermarket and seeing shops which didn't have food on i was just always assumed there would be and and it sort of shows how fragile our sort of modern day food supply systems are how sort of vulnerable they are to the slightest little upset what role do you think a csa can play in sort of future food security We're growing the food and selling it directly to the people who are consuming it. So there's no middleman, there's no traffic disruption. So we're a lot more resilient to sort of outside forces, uh, which showed during COVID, because all of a sudden we had all these people flocking to us, wanting to get vegetables. I think I was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's great that we're sort of a bit more resilient to that, but obviously we can't double our capacity to fit what people are, uh, you know, if, if all of a sudden another 200 people wanted to get veg from us, we'd have to say, sorry, we can't, you know, fulfil that because we can only grow what the field can cope with. You know, ideally, once we got to a point where there was a sustained amount of lots of extra people wanting veg, then we could set up another CSA. Yeah, they're just a really good way of kind of connecting people directly to their food, not just in that it's local, but it's seasonal as well, and people get to learn the seasons where they don't when they go to the supermarket so it's educating them as well as giving them access it's just less to go wrong really because it just you're just getting the veg and bringing it straight to this yeah well i suppose the other thing with the csa is that you share the risks as well as the rewards so for example if you know last year for some reason i think it must have been a very cloudy august or something but the cabbages didn't get very big it was a bumper courgette year but that's the risks and rewards you have with a csa so people get a sense of an ebb and flow of things don't always work Oh, it just sounds such a good place and such a good way of supplying food. So if somebody wanted to get a veg share, how, how would they go about doing that? Well, if they went to our website, which is fiveacrefarm.org.uk, not fiveacrefarm, that's in Bristol, but fiveacrefarm.org.uk, or if you typed in fiveacre community farm, Coventry, then you definitely find us. But you do have to live quite near Coventry to, for it to make yeah, sense. Or, yeah, or commute through Wrighton area um, or rugby. Hopefully there'll be more CSAs springing up around the UK because yeah. they seem to be a really good system. Well, I'd have to say thank you very much for, for all your time and it's been great chatting to you. And I think I need to probably let you get back into the field. I'm sure you've got a busy day ahead. Thank you very much, Becca. Thank you. That was an absolutely fascinating interview there, Anton, that you did with Becca. I mean, it's just really made me think so hard about the whole notion of of how, as a community, we can get directly involved in the growing and producing of our own fruit and veg that we then put on our own table. I mean, it's an amazing model. I know it's been around a long time. Are there more and more CSAs all over the place now? 
Yeah, CSAs are gradually sort of increasing. It, it was very interesting during the pandemic. Loads more people signed up to have a share at Five Acre. I mean, I remember, you know, we actually saw supermarket shelves bare. It was something we've not seen in this country for a long time. And it shows actually how fragile our food systems are, our sort of big corporate food systems. It it involves so many different stages along the chain. You just need something to go wrong along that chain that, you know, it suddenly falls flat. Whereas this system, it's coming straight from the field and and we're collecting it. It's, you know, it's got very few stages to it. And you were, I know, involved in the founding of Five Acres yourself, but you're also a member. I am, yeah. I think I've done a bit of everything at some stage or another. I mean, I was there at the first meeting when with Transition Coventry when it was just um, mooted as an idea. And uh, I was just amazed at how much enthusiasm there was for it. Great big sort of town hall full of people, all enthusiastic for it but not only that they were pledging their own money towards helping to set it up as well there was a massive amount of enthusiasm and then yeah I was involved in actually sort of doing some of the cultivations in the field to get the beds ready and stuff for planting it up I worked with Becca for a summer season um, as an assistant grower so I got to sort of see this see how it all worked I got to sort of get up at God knows when in the morning to pack salad bags and things so they were ready for people. And I'm, I also have a share as well. So I, I, I get veg from there. And yeah, I, I really I really look forward to it. I get it every Tuesday. I'm never quite sure what I'm going to get in my share. I've got a good idea from the sort of time of year. But that sounds really sad. It's one of the highlights of my week at the moment. <laughs> no, I don't think it's sad. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, to think that you know exactly where it's grown, you know the people who've grown it, um, you know actually it's organic, although not all CSAs are organic, but you know they're, they're still filling an amazing local need. I mean, if it's not too rude a question, Anton, how much do you pay as a member? I get what's called a small share, which is, I think it's around £45 a month. So I'm paying about eight or nine pounds a week for all my veg there's just two of us in our household and I can honestly say I never buy any veg from a supermarket perhaps occasionally in the hungry gap season but for most of the year I really do not need to buy any veg it's all organic as well that would cost me an absolute fortune to buy that amount of organic veg in a supermarket I do grow a bit of my own veg as well and generally we're just actually struggling to keep up with the amount of veg we're sort of making soups and all sorts so we are eating a lot of veg definitely get getting our five a day (laughs) that's amazing you tempted Chris to see if you can find out about if there's one local to you well absolutely I think that um, well I mean in an ideal world you'd want more and more of this wouldn't you this localized organic food and uh, I mean, the economic side of it if nothing else as things get more expensive so uh, maybe it's one of the things we can champion absolutely I, I think uh, you know the more we can encourage people to either grow their own as much as they can or support local farmers where they're where they're growing a whole variety of of expertly grown vegetables I mean that that's the thing about it of course is that they're going to be so much better at it than I am, frankly. It's, I think it's also worth mentioning that if you're buying fresh food like this, like Anton's described, he also went on to talk about soups and stuff, it encourages you to get into the kitchen and to think about what you're eating rather than just pulling stuff off a shelf, putting it in a microwave and serving it up. I think the, the whole, all of it rolls together, doesn't it? And, you know, it all becomes one package. And I, I find that fascinating. I think it also encourages you to eat things that you'd never tried before as well. I mean, I sort of knew of kohlrabi beforehand, but I often get that in my in my share now. And, and it's absolutely delicious. You know, you cut it into matchsticks, put it in a salad, put it in a stir fry, put it in soups. It's, it's really, really tasty. So, yeah, it encourages you to be more adventurous with your cooking. <laughs> well, listen, we've also got some other questions we've got to cover here uh, in the post bag section. So I'm going to start with one of our listeners in Scotland. The question is, I live in Scotland and my garden suffers from severe frosts and regular snow during winter. What tips can you give me to help protect my soil during this time? So, Anton, uh, soil, first of all, should there be much soil to protect? This is the question. Well, ideally, we really shouldn't be leaving soil bare over over the winter. I I think particularly, I mean, it's perhaps not quite the same in Scotland, but we are generally getting milder 
and wetter, certainly wetter winters. And that can really do a lot of damage to the soil. I sort of compare it to breadcrumbs. So a good soil structure should have lots of little crumbs or they're known as aggregates. And those allow the sort of passage of water into the soil so that the soil surface can absorb water easily when it rains because it's got lots of little pores and holes for it to go into. If you have lots of really heavy rain, it breaks up those aggregates and they become more like flour rather than breadcrumbs. And if you think what happens when you add water to flour and then let it dry out, it sets in a hard crust. And that's what happens to the soil surface. So really, we want to do anything to sort of protect that soil surface. It might be um, putting something on it or growing a green manure. Just avoid bare soil. OK, so that's the first thing. Try not to have bare soil in the first place. But if you have got some bare soil, Chris, what's the best thing to put on top of it? Well, I think that is and that's absolutely right. Obviously, don't a good gardener doesn't want to see bare soil. But if you're growing a lot of crops, there's a good chance as you start to harvest Gaps will open up, and uh, and uh, if you're, especially if you're busy doing other things, I can kind of understand what that happens. Obviously, protecting it from the, the effects of rain, as Anton has described, is absolutely spot on. But also, I worry about leaching. Heavy rains tend to wash the nutrients through the soil, and that means your soil depletes of, of, of vital things like nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, etc. So yeah, just protect it in a way. I think there's a few ways of go about this. Maybe if you've got lots of leaf mold. If you've collected leaf mould over the years, you can put a big thick sort of band of that on. That will stop the rain breaking up. Even maybe put down cardboard if you like weighted down because you don't want it to blow it away. And obviously it can get a bit windy in Scotland. That would protect it in its own right as well. So I think any kind of protection sort of gap you do, almost like a mulch if you like, at the beginning, at the beginning of the winter so you can stop that rain penetration, that leaching and breaking up of the soil structure will help. Okay, um, moving on to what we might be planting in the spring. We've had a question from somebody who's just bought some organic potatoes. The variety is acoustic and they're infected with sprang. Are they safe to eat? Now, first of all, what's sprang? Anton, can you help me with this? Sprang is caused by a virus and it basically causes these sort of crescent shapes, sort of brown shapes inside the potato tuber. So you end up with these sort of brown crescents. It's quite often mixed up with another disorder that's called internal rust spot. And the difference between them, the way to tell the difference between them is you need to cut the tuber both horizontally and vertically. Then you will be able to see whether you've got spots or crescents within your within your tuber. But only by cutting it will you actually be able to see that. You need to cut it both ways because the crescent might be running a different way through the tuber. Now, these are actually caused by quite different things. So sprang, like I said, it's caused by a virus, but the, the virus can be transmitted in two different ways. It can either be by nematodes, which are microscopic worms, and they travel in the soil moisture, or it can be transmitted by a fungus called the powdery scab fungus. And again, that needs moisture in the soil. So if we've had a really dry year, I think it's unlikely that it's going to be sprang because the sort of two agents that are needed to transmit the virus are unlikely to be in the soil because they both need moisture. However, the internal rust spot is caused by a lack of calcium in the tubers. And that is most commonly caused by lack of water because the calcium needs water to be transmitted. So it's similar in a way to blossom end rot in tomatoes or bitter pit in apples. It's the lack of calcium which causes little bits of the tubers to die. Although it's not toxic to eat, it can slightly taste bitter as well if you've got a lot of it. So if you've just got a small amount, I would probably just bung the whole tuber in a curry or something so it disguises the slight bitterness. Otherwise, I might try cutting it, cutting the sort of affected bits out. Yeah, so sprang and internal rust spot are two things which are often sort of confused. But they're safe to eat, but it's sort of down to whether you feel they're palatable. Right, so on to our last question. I want to grow organic vegetables and fruit for my own consumption. I would like to use veganic compost, basically no animal manures or anything animal derived in the compost I use. Is there such a thing as veganic compost? 
Uh, well, yes, there is. Anton, can you tell us some more? Yeah, so perhaps people are sometimes surprised that there are animal products at all in their compost. They think as compost as just being um, rotted down leafy matter or sort of vegetable waste and wood and things like that. But actually, quite often it's the fertilisers which go into compost, which have been animal derived. They might have stuff like blood, fish and bone um, or other sort of animal manures and things in there to add a bit of fertility. Um, un unlike a bag of crisps or something like that, a bag of compost, they don't have to say what's in it. So reading the label doesn't often help. But luckily, it's becoming more and more common that you actually see the sort of vegan symbol on quite a lot of bags of compost now, because obviously people see that as a selling point. So have a look out for that. Or even in the description, it, it might say that it's all plant derived. Of course, the best way of going about it is making your own, because then you know exactly what's gone into it. But but what about fertiliser and, and, and plant feeds? Because we do talk, you know, a lot about blood, fish and bone, as though it just kind of everybody must use it. But of course, there's actually, you know, a, a choice involved. Yes, there's plenty of other things which are plant derived as well. So obviously, there's comfrey liquid, which you can make your, your own. There's nettle liquid seaweed-based extracts and things. There's, there's also sort of pelleted fertilisers. Again, some of them are made from comfrey. Some of them are made from things like cotton meal, soya meal. There are even some which are made from alfalfa as well. And, and personally at home, I've, I've taken to using alfalfa pellets, which are sold for horse feed, but I use them as a fertiliser. So that's actually quite a cheap way of buying fertiliser. And I think it's quite sustainable as well, because alfalfa is a nitrogen fixing perennial plant so um, you, you know you're actually getting the nitrogen from the air rather than from from a chemical process how fascinating i love it i've been in this game 36 years and i just learned something and that's the beauty of being in this business so i appreciate that <laughs> and again puts you in control you know you're growing stuff for your own consumption you can therefore choose exactly how you want to grow it so that's great. That's all we've got time for. Thanks ever so much. I'll see you all next month. Thank you. Goodbye, Fiona. Thank you. So there's still lots to keep us busy in the organic garden this month. Just make sure you take time to stop and enjoy the sights that the changing season brings. If you enjoy our advice and would like to find out more, have a look at our website, gardenorganic.org.uk, for information about becoming a member of our charity. Amongst the benefits that members receive, such as discounts on our courses and on orders from the Organic Gardening Catalogue, you'll also have access to our advisory team, of which Anton is a member, to help with your specific organic growing queries. Membership starts at just £2.75 a month. And since Christmas is coming up, I must tell you that you can buy membership as a gift if you want to pass on your passion to others. Visit gardenorganic.org.uk for full details. That's it for this month. Our thanks to our sponsors, The Organic Catalogue, and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.